0: Imagine you're asked to make a monument that defines a movement. How do you tell a story through sculpture when the debate is ongoing, the voices are many, and the people involved don't always agree? Who would you choose? You're listening to Shaping History, Women in Capital Art, produced by the Capitol Visitor Center. Our mission is to inform, involve, and inspire every visitor to the United States Capitol. I'm your host, Janet Clemens. Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Mott, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton are the three women whose faces emerge from the portrait monument, sculpted by Adelaide Johnson, and presented to the Capitol as a gift in 1921. The monument has been variously interpreted to represent the fractious nature surrounding the pursuit of women's suffrage, the unfinished work of equality, the multitude of unheard voices, or simply that historically these three stand unique and peerless. Whatever opinion the viewer may form, we know that the men and women who participated were divergent and at sometimes divided by the different types of equality they were aiming to achieve. To help us unpack this complicated history, I visited our neighbors at the Belmont Paul Women's Equality National Monument and spoke to park guide Susan Philpot. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, and we're so close to the Capitol. I mean, we just walked over here from the Capitol Visitor Center and it's like a six minute walk, maybe. (laughs) Let's talk about where we are. So can you tell us a little bit about Belmont Paul?
1: Sure, so for the last 90 years, this has been the headquarters for the National Women's Party founded by Alice Paul. Began in 1916 and is still here I often introduce this as the place for troublemakers because (laughs) they are known especially for their work fighting for the passage and ratification of the 19th Amendment. Although they continue to do work in the cause of women's equality and are still here, they don't cause that kind of trouble anymore though. (laughs) They now are an educational nonprofit, so nobody's getting arrested. Now they are caring for the collections that we see around us in the museum. I have to point out one of the quotes that's here on the wall from one of the National Women's Party members. It says, it's not merely a headquarters for our party that we plan, but an embassy for the women of the nation, a center of thought and activity and a vantage point from which they may keep Congress under perpetual observation. So they were very deliberate about making sure they put themselves here on Capitol Hill right in the center of power. and kind of calling the government to account to make sure it was keeping the issue of women at the forefront.
0: So let's talk about where we are specifically because we're in proximity to a certain artwork. So we are standing here in the Hall of Portraits,
1: which would have been the place that people entered the headquarters when Alice Paul herself was here. You would have entered from Constitution Avenue into this hallway that is adorned by many portraits and statues, and we actually have four statues that are up on pedestals here in the hallway. The one we're standing next to is a bust by Adelaide Johnson of one of the founding mothers of the American women's rights movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And this would become one of the models for Adelaide Johnson's work that is in the Capitol, the Portrait Monument.
0: And it's a portrait bust, right? So head and shoulders, mm-hmm. and it's on a pedestal that makes it almost of a height with us. And it's maybe a, just a little bit bigger than life-size, it looks like to me. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton has kind of a drapery around her shoulders, which looks a bit like a shawl, but also like a classical drapery a little bit to fit the sort of neoclassical look, right? And uh, she's got a very distinctive hairstyle. She's got these huge kind of curls, sort of horizontally back from her face, and then kind of a big curly bun sort of thing at the back
1: and my understanding is that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her daughter Harriet Stanton Blatch who was a member of the National Woman's Party didn't particularly care for this depiction they felt like her hair looked like a bunch of bananas
0: I mean it doesn't look unlike a bunch of bananas, but (laughs) I think they're pretty recognizable as curls. So you mentioned the portrait monument, which Adelaide Johnson crafted, which is in the Mm -hmm. Capitol currently. And this bus also by her, and I'm looking at the date on it, it's 1892. So this is made for the 1893 World's Fair, right?
1: So Adelaide Johnson made a set of busts that were at the 1893 Columbian World Exposition. She started out planning to sculpt Susan B. Anthony, and then Susan B. Anthony suggested that she also needed to do Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who also sat for the work. And then they said, well, you can't have the story of women's rights without Lucretia Mott. And Lucretia Mott, by that point, had passed away. So Adelaide Johnson was used to doing her sculptures from life, but she was able to do Lucretia Mott from a photograph. Mm. So there is a set that was at the Columbian Exposition. We believe that the ones we have are another set that she sculpted specifically for Alva Vanderbilt Belmont, who was the Primary benefactor of Alice Paul's work in the National Women's Party, she's the Belmont, right? The, the Belmont, Belmont and
0: the Paul. Belmont Paul. And actually, as we stand here, she's directly opposite. There's a bust of her, a um, little bit different, a little bit taller, directly opposite. Yes, Elizabeth also Santa, sculpted by, also Adelaide by Adelaide Johnson. Johnson. Look at that. Yes.
1: And you get a real sense of Alva's personality from the way Adelaide Johnson has depicted her in her bust. Not only is she elevated a little bit, but her drapery looks like it's kind of wind-swept. She has her shoulder bared, and she really looks like the force of nature. Yeah, there's motion and life to this.
0: It's interesting with a portrait monument that you know Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony would be together with Lucretia Mott, and you mentioned she had passed away. She's an earlier generation, right? I think the story of women's suffrage very much is a story of several successive generations, right? Can we go back sort of to the beginning, or where can we say the beginning is? Sure, so often
1: one significant moment, if not the beginning, is the Seneca Falls Convention in July 1848, organized by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott. Susan B. Anthony wouldn't the movement for a few years after that but it was bringing together reform-minded people who'd been working on a lot of different causes but for this convention they were going to speak specifically about the issue of women's rights and they drew up their mission statement the declaration of sentiments modeled on the declaration of independence which boldly declared all men and women are created equal Most of that document is a list of grievances, all the ways women were not treated equally. And it was a really long list in 1848. So they were talking about a number of different things, women's position politically, socially, economically. So groundbreaking things that all these reformers are on board with. But the one that got everybody a little stirred up was when Elizabeth Cady Stanton proposed the resolution that it is the duty of the women of this country to secure to themselves their sacred right to the elective franchise. To be enfranchised is to have the right to vote, and another word for that is suffrage and that was considered even by these reformers to be going too far. Yeah. Now you're getting ridiculous when you start to talk about women voting.
0: And I think that's something that people don't necessarily realize about the suffrage movement is that when they sat down at Seneca Falls, they have this list of things. And like you said, social, economic, and political. And the idea of getting the vote was sort of Like you said, the only bit that was controversial, even for these reform-minded people, that that they were sort of on board with the rest, right?
1: And Frederick Douglass, as far as we know, the only African-American at that original women's rights convention. Yeah, there's a couple men
0: there. We don't want to forget them. Yes, a
1: number of men who are supporters of women's rights. Frederick Douglass asks to be heard and stands up and gives a very eloquent speech where he basically says, if you want the other
0: things on the list,
1: you have to include the vote. And he sways... The crowd and that resolution is passed.
0: Yeah, that they're viewing the vote as a tool to achieve the other aims because there are so many of these aims that they're trying to get at. They were also, we said they were reform minded, but I do want to emphasize the point that abolition is is a huge part of this, going into this, right? I mean, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott met at the World Anti-Slavery Conference in 1840, and sort of that's where sort of the seed of Seneca Falls is kind of planted, right? Yes, and so, as I say, we mark that as a significant
1: moment, but not the beginning. Lucretia Mott founding the Philadelphia Women's Anti-Slavery Society is an important moment in the cause for women's rights. She travels to that World Anti-Slavery Conference as a delegate knowing that they don't want to seat women. And so she is there knowing she's challenging them. And as expected, they do not want her to participate as a delegate. Elizabeth Cady Stanton is there as a young bride on her honeymoon. Her husband, her new husband, was an abolitionist. So she did not know this was going to happen and was absolutely shocked at what happened and spent the convention in the company of Lucretia Mott and sort of learning at her side. Although it wouldn't be until eight years later that they
0: decide to organize that women's rights convention. So you mentioned that 1848, the Seneca Falls isn't, it's an important moment in the beginning, but that the movement is way before that, right? And I've noticed on the timeline that the Park Service has that you guys started in the 1600s somewhere.
1: Before this was a nation, there was a woman, Margaret Brent in Maryland, the colony of Maryland, who because she owned property, she believed she ought to have a vote in the council, and so we sometimes mark her as the very first woman suffragist.
0: Wow, so we're talking about 1848, the beginning, Seneca Falls, and then what happens from there? What's the next moment? So
1: the movement for women's rights involves working on lots of things on the list. It's really after the Civil War, when these women who have been united in both the cause of ending slavery and fighting for women's rights. That they see a split in the movement when the question becomes, well, whose rights are we fighting for? There's a significant moment in Kansas when, in 1867, where they believe that Kansas is going to be the first place where both black men and all women will be enfranchised. And both ballot initiatives fail. And that is really the moment that the decision is made among these reformers that we're gonna have to fight for one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And that the first thing on the agenda is the enfranchisement of African American men. And for many women in the movement, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, this feels like a betrayal. So they decide they are not going to work for the enfranchisement of black men. They are not going to support a new amendment to the Constitution, what becomes the 15th Amendment in 1870, that says that the right to vote cannot be denied or abridged based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Mm -hmm. And when they can't get the word sex in there, they decide not to support it at all. This causes not only a split in the movement, but a lot of bitter, angry, racist, ugly language from people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And so we have the movement splitting into two, those who are fighting specifically only for the right of women to vote, and those who believe that any expansion of the franchise is a march towards equality. In 1890, as those original founders, those original workers for women's rights are getting older, the next generation wants to see that split mended. And so the groups come back together in 1890 and form the rather awkwardly named National American Women's Suffrage Association, N-A-W-S-A, or NAWSA for short. (laughs) This is kind of the next generation of suffragists coming together, Alva Belmont is one of those. Mm -hmm. But eventually she starts to feel as if those who've taken up the work are a little too concerned with being respectable and gracious, as if women could win the vote by proving that they are upstanding moral citizens and that's the way they're gonna get what they're looking for. Alva thinks that's not going to work. We need someone who's going to shake things up a little bit.
0: And she did. (laughs) So earlier they had a disagreement about aims and now they have a disagreement about tactics Tactics. essentially.
1: Yes. So Alva Belmont uses her extensive wealth in addition to being the wife of Oliver Hazard Perry Belmont, the family of the Belmont Stakes, a wealthy family. Before that She had been married to William K. Vanderbilt, so married into one of the richest families in the country. So she had a fortune several times over at her disposal, and also the privilege that comes with it, that she interacts with influential people, that the society pages follow her around to bring attention to the cause of women's suffrage, and she decides to use her influence to support a young woman who she sees as a kindred spirit, and that's Alice Paul. And Alva becomes the primary benefactor of all of Alice Paul's work. And so it's that work that we highlight in the exhibits in this museum. And although you don't see Alva's picture often in the picketing or the marching, it's Alva's money usually that's making it happen. You don't just need courage, you need the cash, too.
0: Well, she was busy. I'm sure she had social obligations, too. And I have been to a couple of, and worked at actually, a couple of historic sites associated with her. And we always have the Votes for Women China tea set in the gift shop.
1: Yes, so if you sat down to tea with her, you had a cup and saucer that were Votes for Women. So you would get the message even if she never said anything.
0: That's a tactic in and of itself, right? Okay, so now we've got Alice Paul on the scene, and we have this disagreement over tactics. So we have another split?
1: Uh, Yeah, so Alice Paul gets involved in the cause for women's right to vote, not here in the United States, not at the feet of Susan B. Anthony, as many of the leaders of NASA have been. She gets involved when she is going to graduate school in England, attending the London School of Economics, and she encounters the militant suffragettes led by Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughters. Now here in the United States, women who fought for the vote preferred to be called suffragists. They felt that suffragette was kind of demeaning and belittling them.
0: Because of the diminutive, the right. at the end.
1: But in England, The Pankhurst embraced that term. And like Susan B. Anthony, they could give fiery speeches but they didn't think anything was gonna change by talking about it. If you want change, you gotta cause trouble. So they would have big demonstrations that would shut down things in the city. They'd break into places where women weren't allowed, heckle and interrupt politicians. Their slogan was deeds, not words. And some of those deeds involved property destruction, like throwing rocks and breaking windows. Later, they even started setting buildings on fire. So Alice Paul and the other other American, young Americans who were there in Europe join in these demonstrations. And like the British women, they get arrested. <laughs> they go to jail, which is not something they were ashamed of. They were not interested in being respectable. They wore their prison time as a badge of honor and would wear even pins or medals with a jail door on them to indicate that they had served their time.
0: Yeah, they consider themselves political prisoners. Yes. And then what happens then in the United States? Right. So when
1: Alice Paul returns to the United States in 1910, she arrives to discover she's kind of a celebrity that the press here has been paying attention to this crazy American girl and all these her antics. So when her Ship arrives at the dock in Philadelphia. There's a gaggle of reporters there to meet her, and they say, Miss Paul, are you going to join the American women's suffrage movement? And her response was that she didn't know there was an American women's suffrage movement. much probably to the consternation of all the American women suffragists. There wasn't anything here that looked like what she had seen in Britain, but of course there was an extensive women's suffrage movement. By this point, NASA had annual conventions, they had chapters and affiliate organizations all around the country. They were working to win women the vote at the state level because it's actually states who decide who is eligible to vote and they had had some success. There were four states where women could vote on the same terms as men, Wyoming, Utah, Idaho, and Colorado. And in 1910 another state gets added, Washington State, and that sort of begins more states enfranchising women. In other states women might be able to vote for school board or for some local municipal Mm -hmm. positions, but Alice Paul really didn't have patience for this incremental progress. She had seen such energy and passion in Britain. She wanted to bring those kind of tactics here after she finished her PhD. So then she jumped into the women's suffrage movement here in the United States in 1912, and she convinces the NASA leadership that what they need to do is hold a women's march down Pennsylvania Avenue on the day before Woodrow Wilson's presidential inauguration, March 3rd, 1913. Wow. Yeah, I was
0: hoping we would get to that soon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of her first big foray into the American women's suffrage.
0: And it's a huge event. I mean,
1: unprecedented. So she is the first one to use Pennsylvania Avenue as a route of protest. So if anybody has ever marched down Pennsylvania Avenue for their cause, you're doing it in Alice Paul's footsteps. She is making an argument right there along the inaugural route to say that women have been left out of this whole process and should not be. And here we're going to make an argument right here on the streets of the city of why we should be included. And she gets thousands of women from around the country to all come to represent their states or their professions, because more and more professions are opening up to women. Women are earning money. They represent their universities, because there are more and more opportunities for women to get educated. And men march too. There is a men's league for women's suffrage, some very men who face a lot of ridicule for standing up and being allies of the women's suffrage movement. So as we stand in this hallway of portraits there are lots of paintings and photographs all around us and I have been told that when people came in here to visit Alice Paul would often point at portraits like this and say do you know who these women are? If you were looking around, I would guess that very few of these faces would be familiar to you. Mm -hmm. If I told you their names, you wouldn't know who they are. They're a reminder to me that while there are often a few leaders that come to the top and get their uh, names in the history books, the work of change involves lots and lots of people, most of whose names are lost to history. So that's the one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is that Alice Paul, like many white woman suffragists, was often willing to push African American women to the side. As Alice Paul is putting out the call to bring women to Washington, D.C., there's a women right here in Washington, D.C., who show up at Alice Paul's office ready to sign up. Mary Church Terrell, who is the uh, president of the National Association of Colored Women, comes to say, there's a group of sorority women from Howard University, Delta Sigma Theta, and we are ready to march. And Alice Paul is not welcoming. Mm -hmm. She says, well, I don't think that's the story I wanted to tell there along Pennsylvania Avenue. I don't really wanna bring the race issue into things. We don't wanna upset anybody. I don't think you should march. If you go to the National Archives women's suffrage exhibit, you will find that they uncovered a telegram from the NASA leadership to Alice Paul saying, we hear that you are trying to exclude black women from the women's suffrage procession. Knock it off, basically. Wow. And sometimes in the history it will say that black women marched but in the back. Right. I feel pretty confident that Alice Paul wanted them to, but I don't think they did, because we have numerous sources, including the NAACP's magazine, The Crisis, that places African American women marching where they believed they belonged, the Deltas marching with university women, other women marching with their states or their professions. The most famous story is Ida B. Wells, Mm -hmm. who by uh, 1913 was living in Chicago And so she came with the Illinois delegation. She had started the Alpha Suffrage Club already and was among the many things she worked on. One of them was the cause of women's suffrage. And as they're lining up there by the peace statue, uh, the word sort of comes down. Oh, sorry, Ida, we're healing. you can't march with us that you're supposed to go to the back. And Ida B. Wells gets upset and storms off. They don't know what's happened to her. They think maybe she's left. But she hasn't. She and two white allies are waiting along the parade route so that when the Illinois delegation passes, they stepped right in front. We're not going to the back, we're leading the delegation. We have a little panel about Ida B. Wells here in the museum written by one of our civil rights interns. And his first statement is, you can't spell formidable without Ida. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she definitely was. So, the parade routes Pennsylvania Avenue. Where Good. does it go to? Where does it start? Where does it end?
1: So, it starts, they line up out here by the Capitol in front of the peace statue. Mm-hmm. And the plan is to travel the entire route of Pennsylvania Avenue, which is the inaugural route, and to end at the White House, and they're using kind of the uh, stands that have been set up for the inauguration the next day, and to hold a large pageant on the steps of the Treasury Building demonstrating mm-hmm. the accomplishments of women. That is the plan anyway. Uh, it doesn't quite work out the way they were intending.
0: Yes, those stands along the parade route, there to accommodate cheering crowds, ended up with, I would say, jeering. Yes,
1: so there were about a quarter of a million people who came out to see this procession. So it was huge crowds, you know, a lot of people in the city for the inauguration. And some, you know, supporting women's suffrage or enjoying the pageantry, but others are booing and catcalling and yelling out ugly, vile insults at the women. You can kind of imagine the sort of things they're hearing as they're marching. And then the crowds start to come off the sidewalk and into the street. Now there are more police there than there will be the next day for the inauguration, actually. Mm -hmm. But they decide they either can't or won't control the crowds. One says to a woman, you know, if you'd stayed home, you wouldn't have had this trouble. And so women are getting manhandled and grabbed, some were spit on, others tripped, and as more and more crowds come in, people are getting pulled down off of floats and they're being trampled. A hundred people have to go to the hospital, but they are not deterred by this attack. It takes the cavalry coming over from Arlington to finally control the crowds and clear the route, but once they do, The marchers come back to Pennsylvania Avenue and finish about an hour and a half later than they thought with that planned pageant on the steps of the Treasury Building.
0: And those were big in that time period, these tableaus, Uh, these sort of living scenes and people in costume and posing.
1: So I often say they don't have YouTube or or TikTok. They made their arguments (laughs) with these kind of tableaus or pageants where they're demonstrating the accomplishments and the virtues of women.
0: And it's a form of entertainment that people are familiar with, and it's an iconography people are familiar with, right? The observers are going to know, based on what someone's wearing and what they're holding, what they're meant to represent. Exactly. In a way that we might not, looking at the photos now. Um, Speaking of the parade, like, directly over your shoulder, there's a gorgeous painting here on the wall. It's quite big, I would say. And there's gorgeous gold leaf on it, really strong blue and white and gold colors, or almost a purple-blue, right? Purple, white, and gold are the colors. I think it's meant to be purple, yes, or violet. (laughs) Right, violet. Which
1: will become eventually Alice Paul and the National Women's Party's trademark colors. White for the purity of their purpose. Gold for victory, moving into the light of justice. And violet for courage and nobility of their cause. Or if you say it, gold, white, and violet, GWV. It's give women the vote. Oh,
0: So who is this?
1: So this is a painting of Inez Milholland as she appeared leading the 1913 women's suffrage procession. She is on a white horse and all in white, and she has upon her head a crown with a gold star on the top, the Star of Hope which would eventually become the inspiration for Wonder Woman's tiara. The creator of Wonder Woman is one of those members of the men's league for women's suffrage, so Inez Holland was one of his models, for, among many, for Wonder Woman. And Alice Paul chooses Inez Holland to lead the procession. She is well known as First woman admitted to the New York bar, an activist for many different causes, including the NAACP, a dynamic speaker, but that is not why everyone knows her. They know her because she's movie star attractive. (laughs) She is known as the most beautiful suffragist. So Alice Paul puts her out front as the herald of the future to say this. Is the new generation of suffragists this is the new woman of the 20th century this is what a feminist looks like they did call themselves feminists so that is part of the story that Alice Paul is telling there on Pennsylvania Avenue
0: branding you've got the color scheme you've got the gorgeous spokesmodel so they got the attention they wanted right right
1: so the next day the newspapers all around the country not really talking about Woodrow Wilson's inauguration they're all talking about the women's suffrage procession and then there are hearings in Congress so the The story keeps going. They're staying in the news cycle. They've got everybody's attention. And this is one of the things that really re-energizes the women's suffrage movement in the United States. And particularly a new tactic. One of the floats, the first float everybody sees in this parade, is emblazoned with the words of what become known as the Great Demand. We demand an amendment to the Constitution of the United States enfranchising the women of this country. So she's declaring, forget about one state at a time, little by little. We want to change the US Constitution to ensure the vote for every woman. And she chose that language deliberately when she said we demand. Respectable women are not supposed to demand things. She's trying to stir people up, and it works.
0: And demand rather than request. I mean, this yeah, is yeah, we're not
1: petitioning. We're not
0: requesting. We're it's, not asking. Yeah.
1: demand.
0: This it. is an inherent right. Now, what does Alice Paul do next to bring this? right to the front pages so
1: fairly quickly alice paul has kind of a falling out with the nasa leadership they think she hasn't paid her dues and she's a little too a little doesn't really know her place and what was she doing over there in england anyway so she breaks away from nasa and forms an organization that's first called the congressional union for women's suffrage and eventually changes their name to the national women's party they are always a very small part of the women's suffrage movement nasa is much larger and doing a lot of work winning women the vote one state at a time actually. It's working. Of course you don't get an amendment to the Constitution through one parade. It takes a lot of work and most of it is the work that doesn't get you headlines. Lobbying and petitioning and phone calls and letter writing. They try in 1916 to get Woodrow Wilson thrown out of office They have sort of held Woodrow Wilson accountable Mm -hmm. as the president and the leader of the country to get this amendment through. And Woodrow Wilson was not an ally. He said, you know, I'm very busy. This is not a priority for me. Don't you know there's a war going on in Europe? And by the way, voting is a states rights issue. If you wanna vote, go back to your states and ask. You can afford to wait. So when they can't get him defeated in the 1916 election, they decide to take the battle right to Woodrow Wilson's doorstep and that's when they begin to picket the White House. So they are the first ones to protest there too. So if you have protested in Lafayette Square or seen anybody out there, it was the National Women's Party who started it. They showed up in January when it was really cold, took up positions at the White House gates and stood there all day long without saying anything. They were known as the Silent Sentinels. They just held big, banners with block lettering on it. Anybody walking by or taking a photo could read very clearly. And they often took Woodrow Wilson's words about democracy and liberty and turned them around on him. Mr. President, you say liberty is the fundamental demand of the human spirit. Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty?
0: And it's a case of divided loyalties as there was during the Civil War, right? There were women who, and I think Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote about feeling that she had to put energy behind the war effort and kind of back off from the callous a little bit and so Alice Paul and the others are facing tremendous criticism for the act of criticizing the president while a war is going on. So
1: they're criticized even before the U.S. enters World War I because you know respectable women don't stand on street corners you're making a mockery of the cause, you're making look ridiculous but then when the U.S. enters World War I now that really starts to get problematic you know who do these women think they are? protesting a president during wartime. Isn't that treasonous, maybe? And Alice Paul's response is, when men are denied justice, they go to war. This is our war, only we're fighting it with banners instead of guns. And so when they decide to continue picketing and kind of ratchet up the rhetoric on the banners, crowds start to gather and attack. The women throw things at them, scream at them, rip their banners down, which means the police have to break up violence in front of the White House during a war. And so they say, that's it, Alice Paul. You are causing too much trouble. No more picketing. You ladies show up here again, and we're going to arrest you. And Alice Paul's response was, it wasn't illegal in January when we started. It's not illegal now. We have a right. We are not stopping. So when they continued to picket, they knew they were subject to arrest. And as promised, they were arrested. Yes, that's when the arrests start, right? Right, so the charge eventually is obstructing traffic or a failure to move on for standing on the sidewalk.
0: Like loitering, failure to move on.
1: Mm -hmm. And the first group of women convicted are just fined $25, but because they refuse to pay the fine, the judge sends them to jail for three days, which is kind of shocking. But women keep coming and keep getting arrested. And their sentences for not paying the fines start to get longer. And they start getting sent not to the DC jail, but to the women's prison, the Occoquan Workhouse, thinking, surely, these women will stop. And they don't. I met one woman here who told me the story of her grandmother, Betty Graham, and her great aunt, who were living in New York and saw an ad in the paper that said, come and pick it. You will be arrested.
0: They were. We promise you'll be arrested. (laughs) Come on down and see. So they're in the Occoquan workhouse and their treatment is not ideal.
1: The prison is, as all prisons are, horrific. right? Dangerous, rat infested, and it's a workhouse. They're put to heavy labor. They're cut off from their families and their lawyers. And then Alice Paul heads out on the picket line. And when she is arrested, The officials try to commit her to the insane asylum, which is even worse than the prison. Mm -hmm. This woman must be crazy that she won't give this up. Fortunately for Alice Paul, the doctor won't go along with it. He said she's perfectly sane. She just wants to vote. But through all of this, they begin to claim, you're not locking us up for what we're doing. We're not obstructing traffic. You don't like what we're saying. That makes us political prisoners. So here are the Geneva Conventions governing the treatment of political prisoners. We want to wear our own clothes, and we want better food, and we're not going to work. And you can imagine how the prison officials responded to these demands.
0: Demands again. We demand demand. that we be treated as political prisoners.
1: Yeah, there was one night where the women were beaten all night long, called the Night of Terror. But they begin to protest their conditions through hunger strikes, just Mm -hmm. like women in Britain had done. That was a tactic that Alice Paul learned from Britain. But they know how to keep people talking and get the message out. And they have people like Alva Belmont on the outside giving interviews, also the husbands and fathers of many of these women are prominent citizens who can also speak to what's happening. They're getting a lot of publicity. They've got friendly guards giving testimony about what's happening to them. And there's this kind of public outcry about the brutalization these women are facing. And so the officials back down and release all the women by the end of November of 1917, just in time for them to get home and cook Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) And they don't stop protesting, and now they have another story to tell. They go around the country wearing prison garb, which was considered very transgressive to be out side in public as a respectable woman looking like a prisoner, and they would give testimony about what had happened to them and say, you know, do you see? This is why women need the vote right now. This is how your own country can treat you when you don't have a voice.
0: So now we're in 1917, so we're almost there. (laughs) By 1918, Woodrow Wilson
1: starts to let it be known that, as a matter of fact, he does support an amendment to the Constitution enfranchising the women of this country, but not, he makes it clear, because of troublemakers like these. It's because he wants to reward the women of the nation who have so faithfully supported the war effort on the home front. It is certainly true that the war made it clear how important women's contribution to society was and sort of highlighted how unfair it was Mm -hmm. to expect women to participate in their civic community while not having a voice in their politics. Whatever the reason for Woodrow Wilson's change of heart, it turns out that Alice Paul's tactic of targeting the president was the right one, that his support, is the thing that starts to get things moving through Congress. That and that a woman has been elected to Congress. Yes, Jeanette Jeanette Rankin. Rankin. I was just
0: thinking about her. So
1: Jeanette Rankin representing Montana, Mm -hmm. which she sort of single-handedly won women the vote in Montana, and then they elected her to Congress. She is, on the inside, able to get this amendment moving through committee and out onto the floor of the House. It is not until the Democrats lose a midterm election at the end of 1918 that it finally passes through the Senate in June 4th of 1919, but they have won the first hurdle of getting that amendment through Congress by June of 1919.
0: In 1919, mm-hmm. yeah. But we're celebrating the centennial of the amendment this year, 2020, right? Because it's not till 1920 that every state gets on board.
1: Right. So. To amend the Constitution is a big job. Not only do you have to pass it with the two-thirds of majority of both houses of Congress, but you have to get three-quarters of the states to approve it or ratify it. There are 48 states in 1919, which means they need 36 for full ratification. By that point, 28 states had some form of women's suffrage because NASA was continuing to fight for women's vote at the state level. They're big Victory was in 1917 when women in New York won the vote. Mm -hmm. So by the time this amendment is going out to the states there are lots of places that support women's suffrage. What had seemed so crazy when Elizabeth Cady Stanton had first proposed it has now become much more commonplace and it turns out that whatever the anti-suffragists say, when women vote society does not in fact collapse. (laughs) But all those fighting for women's right to vote believe they have to get this amendment ratified before the November 1920 election. Because after that election there will be a new president Mm -hmm. and maybe they're gonna have to start all over again. They will lose momentum. Which is a really short window. It means that in most states, the governor has to call a special session of the legislature together to vote. But they are getting it done. One state after another by March of 1920s Washington state becomes the 35th state to ratify which means they only need one more but by that point already five states had voted no and in the coming months three more states will vote no. so they are running out of time and running out of states when it comes up for a vote in Tennessee in August of 1920 everybody thinks this is our last chance. No other states are going to vote before the November 1920 election. Mm -hmm. So all eyes are on Nashville. The Tennessee State Senate votes to ratify the amendment. It goes to the Tennessee State House. They hold a vote, and it's a tie. 48 to 48. Oh, are you kidding me? All this time, all this work, it's come down to getting one guy to change his vote. So both Sides are down there, lobbying, trying to hold on to their supporters and sway one more person over. There is, by this point, a very concerted and organized anti-suffrage movement. Is this where the roses come in? Yes, so each side is handing out roses to their supporters. So when the men in the Tennessee State House all gather again to take another vote, they all have a rose pinned to their lapel. If it's a yellow rose, he's a suff. He's going to vote yes. But if it's a red rose, he's an anti. He's going to vote no. And if you were standing there in the chamber counting up roses, you would say, it's going to be another tie. Nobody's changed their vote. Mm -hmm. Harry Byrne, the youngest guy there, only 24, is wearing the red rose of an anti. But he also has a letter in his pocket that was delivered to him that morning. It's a long letter, but part of it reads, hurrah, and vote for suffrage. And don't keep them in doubt. And it's signed, don't forget to be a good boy. Lots of love, mama. Harry Byrne changed his vote. That was the one vote that made the difference. Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify the amendment. 72 years after the Seneca Falls Convention, the women of this country had secured to themselves their sacred right to the elective franchise.
0: When the portrait monument arrived in 1921, it wasn't the first time women were featured in the art at the Capitol. The statue of Frances Willard by Helen Farnsworth Mears had been given by the state of Illinois in 1905. Similarly, the 19th Amendment wasn't the beginning or the end of the story of women in Congress. In our next episode, we'll explore more than a century of women at the Capitol. Thank you for listening to Shaping History, Women in Capital Art. For more information or to book a tour, please go to visitthecapital.gov. The interviews included in this podcast represent the personal reflections and opinions of the interviewees and should not be considered as the official views or opinions of the U.S. Capitol Visitor Center, the architect of the Capitol, or members of Congress.